Turning your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 4, if I haven't said that already. We're going to be covering verses 2 through 6 this morning. We'll read that just in a moment. But uh, I just wanted to express what a blessing it was for me to be able to take a break and to spend some time with family, but to also have our messages available on Facebook page and in other media, forms of media. I think they're on Spotify, um, and Nick has taken care of that. And so we, we have it going out to a lot of places. But it's a benefit to me to be able to listen to those messages at a later date when I don't have an opportunity. Opportunity and to kind of catch up on where we were. And I was very blessed to listen to some powerful and convicting messages from God's Word, and I appreciate the time that both Wes and Ray took uh, in dedicating their time to study of the Scripture and to bring those teachings for us. I was blessed by them, and I know that you were as well if you were here. And if you weren't, then I would encourage you to go back and listen to those messages. Uh, One of the things that really stood out to me in listening to the messages brought by Wes and Ray is just the tremendous amount of responsibility that we have as image bearers of God to represent Christ well in the spaces that he places us in. Uh, We have a responsibility to uh, be uh, the ones that demonstrate what Christ has done for us and in us. And we all have roles that we fill in other people's lives. And as Christians representing our Lord as his bondservants or his slaves, as Scripture calls us, we have an obligation to reflect him and to reflect him well in our lives. And when we don't, then we should feel uh, convictions that come upon us. And if we aren't feeling convicted when we are not living a life that is Christ-like, then we need to evaluate our salvation altogether. You know, there should be some things that we're convicted by when we do sin or we do act in ways that are not representative of Christ in us. And we need to look to the one who is able to supply us with all the strength that we need in the ministries and the responsibilities to others um, and how we can glorify him in our service unto him. We're not in this alone. He has provided us a means by which we can be empowered and enabled to affect these responsibilities in our lives and do so in a way that is joyful and worshipful. In Colossians chapter four, um, we find some tools here as we close out this very important letter to the church in Colossae to us as well. And I want to start with verse 2 because I believe that's where Ray brought us to pretty much in the end of the sermon last Sunday. So if you're there with me, please follow along in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in, in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Um, Early on in chapter 3 of Colossians, and you don't have to look very far back to find where we were not too long ago, we started looking at the practical ways that those as believers should be demonstrating a life that is lived in Christ. Paul has taken time through chapters 1 and 2 to develop the sufficiency of Christ and the supremacy of Christ, and that was to refute a lot of the false doctrines that were coming into the church at that time, and now that he has laid that solid foundation underneath us, what we build our Christian lives upon, how is that supposed to look in us? 
But what are you supposed to see in me as a believer in Jesus Christ, one who has been regenerated and born again by his Holy Spirit? What is now different about my life that is lived in him? And so if chapter three on is pretty much laying out those practical ways that we should be able to see Christ in the one who professes him. All right, so we should recognize that we can't do all of that alone. And he didn't intend for us to. And that is why in John chapter 14, Jesus promises a helper who would be with us and who would be in us, that he actually indwells the life of a believer by his spirit. And in that, he enables and empowers us to be able to live out this life in him. We can't do it of our own steam. It will falter and it'll fall short and within a week we'll be burned out and we'll go on to the other thing. We have to have another power within and that's what he provides us. He gives us and other believers um, the, also the privilege of being able to walk alongside each other as fellow believers in Christ that we can encourage one another and we can edify one another and keep them lifted up and keep them prayed up and that's one of the gifts that he blesses us with as those of his church. His word never promises though a life of ease when we become a believer and in fact oftentimes we encounter more opposition we encounter more trials in our life and we should look to that with joy as James writes in his epistle that he says consider it all joy when you face trials of many kinds for in that he is producing and growing our faith and so as believers we should never expect that we're just going to have a life of comfort and ease and that's what his promise is to us because I find that really nowhere in his word I'd be twisting the scriptures if I were to try to promise that to you. Nowhere we promise this. But when we come under the yoke uh, that he tells us in his word that is easy and he makes that burden light, it's because he helps us carry it. He makes a Christian life even joyous and exciting when we're serving him. We can view it even as an act of worship to him when we treat others with kindness and show regard for those that he has placed in our lives as our responsibility, if you will, which we're we're covered uh, very uh, well in the services last Sunday, the last two Sundays. But it is when we fail to look to our Savior to help us that we are then weakened in our walk and we can then become overwhelmed by these responsibilities that we bear. He did not intend to, for us, though, to walk around feeling burdened by these circumstances and the needs of people when we turn to a Savior who is able to come alongside us and help us bear up under the weight of this life and its responsibilities. And that is why we really need to pay attention to what comes next for us in this section of Scripture. All right, so I believe... Um, Here we have been given some aids that helps us in being able to bear these responsibilities to remind us of what needs to be applied in order to joyously serve others and to serve God. Whether um, we serve in our, our homes, with our family members, whether we serve in church or whether we serve in work, we're to live out this life of Christ. But we need that communication line with him in order to help us, in order to enable us. So let's look to see what verse two tells us. Coming back to our text in Colossians chapter four, it says, continue steadfastly, this is verse two, continue steadfastly in prayer, be watchful in it with thanksgiving, and at the same time pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. 
So the Holy Spirit through Paul is laying out some final application points as this letter closes to help us in our service to the Lord. What do you do when you are feeling overwhelmed by your responsibilities and you feel that you are not ministering to others as you should? Very simply put, pray. Pray, exclamation point. Prayer is the most effective tool we have been given in bringing our burdens, our concerns, our cares, these responsibilities that we have been given, and even our praises, that is what we have to bring these things before God and know that we have a listening ear and that he cares about them and that he hears us when we come to him in prayer. But if we were to make an honest assessment of our prayer life, I think most, if not all of us, would say that is not what it should be. There could always be more time given to prayer In Ephesians 6, and I want you to turn there with me now, and then once you get there, put in a placeholder. I recognize in listening to the message the past Sundays that there are a lot of parallels between things that Paul includes in his letters to the church in Colossae and then also to his church to those in Ephesus. So we're going to be going back and forth a little here as we make these comparisons. And if you are very familiar with the book of Ephesians and especially chapter six, you know this is where Paul begins to uh, develop that full armor of God and then he closes it out, that full armor, with uh, describing the prayer life of a believer and that's more what I'm gonna be looking at this morning. But if you found your way to Ephesians six, notice there that Paul includes prayer almost like the capstone to the armor of God. This is what bookends all the armor that he discusses prior to that. Once you turn there, uh, yeah, just hold your place there, but look at Ephesians 6, 12. So there's something that we must recognize in this life that we live in Christ, that we are engaged in a battle, and that this battle isn't of flesh and blood, as Paul writes, but he says it is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So as we look to what Paul is writing in Colossians about prayer, recognize that um, he's speaking about a lot of the things that are in the spiritual realm, these spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's where the battle is waged. And this is a place where worldly weapons and defensive armor are ineffective. We must engage with the spiritual armor of God that we must put on. And the way that we put on that armor and the reason why Paul ends that armor discussion with his thoughts on prayer, not his thoughts, but the Holy Spirit's instruction on prayer is because this is how we apply it. This is how we put that armor on. It is done through prayer. And so there are so many parallels here in Ephesians that we're going to be referencing it often as we look through Colossians today. But to simply put it, prayer is vital to a believer's life. Uh, We can't really have a life lived in him unless we are praying. Through prayer, believers confess their sin. We offer up praise to God. We call on the one who is our sympathetic high priest, Jesus Christ our Lord, who is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is the one who makes intercession for us with the Father, and we also in turn intercede for others in prayer. And a lot of you could probably list other things that we do when we engage in prayer. But just a couple of things about prayer that we find in God's word before we really get into this passage from Colossians is that it must be from a pure heart must be from a pure heart. And where do we find that? If you go to Psalm chapter 66, verse 18, 
You can either write it in your notes or just turn there with me if you want some practice and being able to find these verses in scripture. But Psalm 66, 18 is very important about how we are to pray and how we approach God in prayer. Psalm 66, 18 tells us that if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. This tells me that sin hinders our prayer. We must approach God in prayer with a sincere heart, recognizing that we have nothing but to be honest before God because he sees it anyway, and it must confront our sin. He knows it. If we confess it and just get it done with before you go to asking him about it, then he will listen to us. It says, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, if he had delighted in his sin, is what the psalmist says, clinging to it, holding on to it, making his life about it, then God would not hear his prayers. And that's how sin can have an impact on our prayer life. So we must approach prayer with a pure heart. And another thing about our prayer is that is to be directed towards God. Uh, Jesus says this in his model prayer in Matthew 6, 9. It says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So the orientation is very important. I know that sounds very simplistic and elementary to say, hey, we direct our prayers to God, but it can be easy to get in the habit of directing our prayers to the listening audience. You know, that is hard for those that are called upon often to pray in public, is we want to preach to the people in our prayers when actually the line of communication is between us and God. And so we need to be cognizant that prayer is with a pure heart and directed unto God. And we should also understand that our prayers must be consistent with the mind and will of the Holy Spirit. And um, my scriptural support for that statement is found in Ephesians 6.18, Again, that's that armor of God that I ask that you hold your place in. That's where Paul says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayers and supplications. So this is in the spirit. This is recognizing that God is going to do his will and that's the will that we want. And sometimes we hear people say, you know, you, you just say this in Jesus' name and then you will have what you've asked of him, almost as if God is our genie in the bottle and he has to beckon at our will and command and that is not God. If we're praying consistent with his spirit, asking for the things that God would want, when we attach Jesus' name at the end of our prayers and he's the one that is advocating for us with the Father, it's to pray what he would want. And if we're praying his will, then he will respond and answer to his will. But it is not to just apply that in Jesus' name and think that we're going to have whatever he wanted. I mean, if that were the case, I would have a new uh, diesel Ford pickup out here or something like that, if, if you're a Ford fan. I, it, it could be a Chevy or, or GMC. I wouldn't ma- matter. But no, that's, that's not how we're supposed to <laughs> approach that. Okay, we don't want to get in a battle here. <laughs> All right. So we know it's uh, with a pure heart, directed to the Father. It's praying Uh, within the will of the Spirit, and it is to be done in the name of Christ, as I already mentioned, for the glory of God the Father. So one of the ways that we can glorify God is through our prayers. In John 14, 13, that's the passage where uh, Jesus, or this is a chapter where Jesus is promising the helper, the Holy Spirit, and in verse 13 of that chapter, he says, whatever you ask in my name, this will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So for the purpose of glorifying God is one of the reasons that we pray. 
If you studied the scripture for a while, you should know that the mention of the importance of prayer in God's word is not an isolated occurrence. We're not just finding it here in Colossians and then in Ephesians and nowhere else, but throughout God's word, we find the mention of prayer being important, I'd say even being vital to the life of a believer. Uh, We looked at it already in 618 of Ephesians. He says they're praying at all times. Um, If you turn to 1 Thessalonians 517, there we are told to pray without ceasing. In Romans 12.12, it says there we are to be devoted to prayer. Uh, Remember in the upper room, when Jesus um, gave this command for them to wait there for the coming of his Holy Spirit, There, they were continually devoting themselves to prayer, seeking God's will. And it was an example followed by the early church, if you continue on into the book of Acts, Acts 2.42, a very simplistic model of the structure of the church. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which is the study of God's word, and the fellowship, the coming together, and then also to the breaking of bread, which is a sharing of the Lord's Supper, that union that they had in Christ, celebrating that, and then also the prayers. They found the importance of prayer very vital to the the development of the church and the outworking of the church. Now, coming back to our passage in Colossians 1, or Colossians 4, I'm sorry, I know I've done a lot of building up to this, but I think it's, it's good that we have these scriptures in mind as we move into this section of our study The first thing is that we are to continue steadfastly in prayer. That's what Paul starts out with in verse two. And another way of translating this is devote yourselves to prayer, depending on what translation you're looking at. Whether it's steadfast or devotion, it comes from one Greek word, but actually two Greek words here, and it's proskaterio, proskaterio. And this is a compound word, so one English word comes out of two Greek words that are put together. There's karterio, which means to be steadfast or to endure. Well, I think we understand what that means. And then there's a preposition added to it, and that's what intensifies the meaning here. So when you have proskarterio, that means that steadfastness, that diligence that we must have in prayer. The verb actually means to be courageously persistent that we can come before his throne of grace boldly because of what Christ has done for us as our intercessor. So there's that courageous persistence that is found in this prayer. Another way of defining it is to hold fast and not let go. And then I made an attempt here, um, maybe going above and beyond, doubling down on our prayer life. I mean, we could all use a better prayer life. This isn't just a charge to the church in Colossae, but it extends to us as well today. It's directed towards all, all believers. We're to be diligent in it. We're to double up on it. And I'm not going to go around and do a survey. <laughs> well, let's, let's do that real quick. No. <laughs> but I'll let you do that on your own. But how would you describe, or would you describe your prayer life this way? Is it steadfast? Is it diligent? Is it Above and beyond, there is a Greek word that is used to describe the word fervent prayer. You see Paul use that elsewhere. And I think it's ektenos. And it's a medical term that describes the stretching of the ligament to the point almost of snapping. Is your prayer like that? Is it fervent? Are you praying with your spirit in in all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? 
And I think if I were really asked that question of myself, just to do that internal survey, I would probably say, no, very seldom is it done that way. And if it doesn't look like this, what do I need to change? What do I need to change? It's an evaluation or question for us all to consider. And the second thing we see here in this description of prayer that Paul gives us is that we are to be watchful in it. Now, what does this mean? How are we to be watchful in prayer? Well, a couple of passages I want us to take a look at. First, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. And we're gonna start with verse 36 and taking us back to the Garden of Gethsemane when Christ was praying to the Father and he asked his disciples to stay up and to pray with him but yet they kept on falling asleep and he would go back and wake them up, you know, continue with me in prayer. And this is the, the scripture that I want us to look at as we think about Paul telling us to be watchful in our prayers. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 36. That's for chapter 25, hold on. Gotta turn the page. <laughs> okay, now while they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. Hold on just a second. What did I? 36, I'm sorry, I went to 26. Okay, then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. And then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping and said to them, and said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, my father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying to, to them, saying the same thing once more, which is, my father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. So Jesus is undergoing much spiritual duress at this time and he's calling upon his disciples to stay up with him and to be watchful in their prayer time, to know that the enemy is afoot and he's about his business right now and so we need to be mindful of that. And so there is a, a spiritual awareness, I believe, that Paul is drawing out of us in this type of prayer, that we need to have a cognizance of the battle that we looked at in Ephesians chapter six that Paul says is not of flesh and blood, but is about the rulers and the authorities and the evil powers and the cosmic powers over this present darkness, that this is a spiritual battle that is being waged and it requires a spiritual awareness in prayer because that battle is not not of flesh and blood. You know, Christians should understand that we undergo a spiritual bombardment. Our enemy wants nothing more than to disrupt our, our prayer lives and our time in, in God's word. And he wants to render us as ineffective as he can for the work of God's kingdom building. And if you've held your place in Ephesians 6, flip back to it with me now and look at verses 17 through 18. But also remember that before this, Paul has said, again, this is a spiritual battle. But looking at this to build upon the parallels that we see in Colossians, 
Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So he's kind of closing out the spiritual armor that we have. But then in verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. And then he says, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And the word of God, speaking of an alertness of the believer's prayer, the same thing as being watchful in our prayer with all perseverance. And this is more than just a physical staying awake to pray, but there is a mindfulness in it. In times of battle, there is a watchman that would stay up and would be awake and would wake up the rest of the troops when the battle was being waged and you needed your forces and you needed to rally them. You had to have a watchman stand guard and be alert to these things. And we must do that in our prayers in a spiritual sense, recognizing that the attack of the enemy comes in all different ways. And we can stay alert of this attack and know what it, comes, what it looks like if we're also staying in our word. So it requires that combination, being in our word, hearing from God through his word, and then us communicating with God through prayer. So the word of God is speaking of this alertness that we need to have. And we should also be looking out for things, you know, that could corrupt the church. You know, in, in a spiritual way, there's false doctrines, uh, things that you can affirm, the sinful practices and allowing those to continue and permeate the church and bringing those uh, things into our prayers and asking for God's protection from them. And I think that we should also be alert about the things we should be praying for in others. As to be concerned, we must be alert to the specific needs around us. And we take time at men's Bible study for a good portion of that at the beginning to lift up prayer needs and that's where Paul would say in Ephesians 6 that making supplication for all the saints, we should be doing that. It's important to pray for physical needs, but more than that, we need to pray that God will give people victory in the battle against the enemy. The third thing about this prayer, so we've looked at the diligence, the steadfastness of it, right? We've looked at the watchfulness in it, and then the third thing is that it must be done with thanksgiving, Prayer should always involve gratitude towards God for his provision both in the spiritual sense and also in the physical sense that he gives us blessings in this life that we have. We have food, we have clothing, we have jobs, we have work, we have a way to provide for ourselves, but more importantly, thankful for our salvation that is found in Christ alone without which our prayer would be ineffective. He wouldn't hear our prayers if we didn't have a relationship with him if we weren't called to be a child of God that we have an advocate, we have the great high priest, Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of God. He petitions on our behalf and all of our life in him should be saturated in just this thankfulness and in a grateful heart. And this seems to be captured back in chapter three of Colossians, if y'all want just to look back there with me. In verses 15 through 17, and in every one of these verses, Paul highlights thankfulness. In verse 15, he says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with what? Thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or do, deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Well, Paul includes this in all of these statements that we need to be thankful. And we have so much to be thankful for when we stop and we really consider all the blessings and the provisions of God. 
If you ever try to cook or bake something and you leave out a key ingredient, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a wonderful cook. I have to have a simple recipe because I, I can't follow something that's really complex. But if you are a cook and you leave out an important ingredient, then it probably just doesn't taste right. In fact, you probably just want to throw it all away because it really didn't come out right. And that's the way I view thankfulness in a believer's life. It is a key ingredient in our walk with the Lord and in our prayers unto him. You know, thanking God. And that's probably what your prayer needs to start off with, having gratitude. And if you're having trouble in your prayer life in the thanksgiving part, because maybe you are so overwhelmed by burdens and responsibilities in your life that you know, oftentimes we just want to launch into the request part of our prayer. You know, give me, give me, give me, and fail to include the gratefulness and the thankful heart in our prayers to him. But it must be with thankfulness in our hearts. And we shouldn't have to really search very hard for something to be thankful for, but we are prone to get overwhelmed by circumstances of life. And what I would encourage you to do is if you're having a problem finding things to be thankful for, turn to God's word because God's word has in there reasons to be thankful. In fact, there are prayers and praises in the Psalms that express thankfulness and I wanted to share one with you. I mean, if you're having problems with this, maybe start out with a Psalm, just reading it out loud. Psalm 100, one through five. And in a caption over that passage of scripture in my, in my uh, Bible, it says, I think a thankful hymn or a, a psalm of thanksgiving. A psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. Something to be thankful for. And we are his we are his people and the sheep of his pasture that he has called us to and that he has saved us. How thankful we should be for our salvation. Verse four, enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise, give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. And the Psalms are just full of these hymns of praise. So if you are struggling in your prayer, just turn to a Psalm and read it out loud. Continuing on here in Colossians, the fourth thing that I find in, in verse three of our, our study of chapter four, it reminds me that prayer is more than just bringing our own needs before the Lord, but it should always involve praying for others and also asking others to pray for us. And Paul doesn't hesitate to do that. I think this also has something to do with the part about being watchful in our prayers, watching what to pray for in others if they aren't willing to ask us what to pray for. Our flesh, though, can be so self-centered that it can extend into our prayer lives where we seldom think about what others need and we immediately go to bless me, help me type of prayer. But we are to be involved in making supplications for each other. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So Paul requests this of those reading the letter. He desires their prayers. And a parallel, again, is also found in Ephesians chapter six. At the end of this, describing the full armor of God, and I know we've already looked at it, but verses 18 and 19, I'm gonna go there to remind ourselves that Paul there says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, 
that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. This is so much more than protection from physical harm. Paul is not praying about that. And hardly ever does Paul ask for prayer about that. I think I remember at the end of 2 Corinthians, isn't it, that he prayed, he prayed that God would remove that thorn in his flesh, which is kind of a mystery, and people try to describe what it is. But he prayed that for himself, but I don't know that he asked for others to pray for him, but very seldom does Paul do that. But he understands the effectiveness of other believers petitioning God to do the work of opening doors so that they could spread the gospel, and that is what his prayer request is here. The prayer request is about reaching lost souls for Christ. And being in prison, you would think that Paul would would request for the believers to, hey, tell God to open these prison doors like he did for me and Silas, you know, back here in Acts, which he never prayed for, just God responded to their worship and miraculously opened the prison doors. If God chooses to free him, he'll free him, but Paul doesn't ask for that. He says, open this door, the door of effectiveness for God's word to go out and to be shared with others. He, He saw that his circumstance was just there from the providential leading of God. And he didn't want his freedom necessarily from that, but he wanted for the door to be open for the sharing of the word. And an honesty check for me and you is how often in our prayers do we pray for the effectiveness of the gospel in our lives and in the lives of others. And I had to stop and really think about it, and I'm not sure I include this very often in my prayers, but I really think that I should because a lot of times the prayer requests that come are the physical needs, the things that people need for healing from sickness, or maybe it's a a physical affliction, but how more important it is that we're praying for the gospel to be going out into the world through our Christian walk, having desire the opportunities would open up for the sharing of the gospel. And Paul concludes that verse with saying that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak, I think we are here today, many if not all of us believers, because of the effectiveness of this prayer request. You know, Paul was continually asking for the effectiveness of the gospel and doors be open, and it's just kind of interesting and fascinating at the same time to think that Paul was praying for what is happening still today by the effectiveness of God's word being in the hands of faithful men and women declaring the mystery of Christ, which is the gospel. But let's not assume that it's not going to come at a cost because Paul reminds us and them that it has brought him incarceration. He is in prison because of his sharing of the gospel. But did he let that hinder him from proclaiming the gospel? Absolutely not. And we in turn should not think that our sharing of the gospel um, should be done only when it is convenient for us or only when it will not put our lives in jeopardy. We walk through the open doors that God provides whenever he provides them not when it's just convenient for us. Paul also requested help in saying the right words. And Paul recognized that he needed more than just his intellect, which was, which was very serious and profound. He needed more than just his Jewish education. He had studied with all the greatest rabbis. He would say in Philippians that that's all rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He wanted others to know. He wanted the gospel to get out to the world. And I want to get better at my understanding of the gospel in order to be effective in witnessing to others. And that is clear in how it's presented. I had listened to a message 
on my way back from Amarillo after taking my mom there, and uh, it was a message about this particular passage of scripture, and this pastor in his church challenged those in his congregation to be able to share the gospel if someone came into their room and woke them up at two o'clock in the morning and said, hey, share the gospel with me, that they should be that ready to articulate the gospel at the time when it's most inopportune. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to do that, but uh, Stephen lives next to me. He's my son-in-law. I might go knock on his door at 2 (laughs) a.m. But he'd probably say, here, just take care of Maddie. (laughs) So how we ought to speak is expanded on the next set of verses. So let's read the remaining text for our study today, and that's in verses 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This concerns a Christian's actions and words to the outside world. And this has always been the case for the church. And that is that those outside the household of faith are going to scrutinize. That's just what they're going to do. And it may be out of curiosity, but more often than not, it is to see if you are living out what you profess how are we treating our families? They're gonna be watching. How do we interact with our coworkers? They're gonna be watching. Can others see a changed life? The wisdom that Paul writes of here is acting on the knowledge that we have. We can have all the, the knowledge from God's word you know, in our heads. We can have tons of verses memorized, but it's not being of any influence or impact on the world around us that are watching if it's not being lived out. And that's the wisdom component of the knowledge. We act upon that knowledge in wisdom and live our lives as image bearers of Christ. A believer's wisdom is acting on the word of God, on its instruction. It is seeking help through prayer, recognizing this can't be done on our own power, but with his power indwelling us. In 1 Corinthians 1, verses 30 and 31 This was a New Testament passage that we referenced when we were studying the book of Proverbs together, studying wisdom. What is wisdom to us? In verse 30 of 1 Corinthians, it says, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Walk in wisdom. And Paul also says that we are to make the best use of our time. And that one's pretty convicting to me. As I took some time yesterday to to watch a football game and (laughs) maybe spend too much time on my phone (laughs) rather than studying God's word. But, you know, we are a society where it seems everything centers around preparing for our future monetarily, right? Building up our income, trying to fatten up our bank accounts, usually preparing for that time when we're going to leave that job and we're going to live a life of ease and we want enough money there to give us a life of comfort well after we have left our jobs. And that is what we find a lot of. You know, you peruse the internet, look at how to build your your success financially and, and you'll find a ton of YouTube videos on that. Maybe only three about a beetle, but you'll find tons on how to build your retirement. And this really is, though, in opposition to what Scripture tells us. Turn to Romans 13, if you will, with me. Look at verses 11 through 14. (coughs) 
as Paul reflects on this for us. Romans 13, verses 11 through 14, he said, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as is in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And Paul is speaking of the urgency in redeeming the time that we have here, redeeming it for Christ, redeeming it well. There's a fairly popular Christian book was written by John Piper. It's called Don't Waste Your Life. Some of you may know what I'm referring to here. But I took an excerpt from that book and I put it in here as we consider, you know, redeeming the time wisely. He says, consider a story from the February 1998 edition of Reader's Digest, which tells about a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. At first, when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life before you give an account to your creator be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells. That is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. Over against that, I put my protest, don't buy it, don't waste your life. And that's the end of the excerpt quote from a book written by John Piper, but I think it's fitting for what we're looking at this morning. You know, what are we doing with our time? And I inserted an illustration in here that I'm gonna try to hold it together because I wasn't aware that um, there would be some family members of this gentleman here in our congregation today, but my pastor friend Dick Means retired so that he could focus more on his service to the church and to sharing the gospel. And he knew that he was passing away with cancer, but he didn't let that hinder his service. The cancer had so affected his health that he had to have help getting down from the podium after preaching his last sermon. And he had his son-in-law take him home and put him in bed. And within a week, he passed away. He didn't want to present his Lord with seashells. And that is a life that stands in contrast to what our society promotes today. In Psalm 90:12, we are told, so teach us to number our days that we may present to thee a heart of wisdom. Let's read this last verse and consider some things as we close. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We are brought back to what it is that people hear from us letting our speech be gracious and seasoned with salt. Gracious speech is speech that doesn't retaliate. It checks itself before it leaves the mouth. It doesn't give others what they deserve. Sometimes we speak of giving people a good tongue lashing as if they they deserve it, but graceful speech is not that. Paul in Ephesians 4.29 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. 
And that isn't a situational grace that he is talking about, that when people are speaking good things to you, you're just gonna reciprocate with good things to them, but when they're speaking bad or evil things of you, maybe spreading gossip and lies about you, it doesn't reciprocate in kind. Paul says that it is always graceful. Not situational graceful, but always graceful. So whether you are facing severe trials or persecutions, you know, maybe home life isn't going as great as you want it to, work really stinks, or you've been waiting 30 minutes for your server to take your order, and I threw that one in there for me, (laughs) always let your speech be gracious. And in addition to our speech being gracious, it is to be seasoned with salt. And what does that mean? Well, it, it is a metaphor to show that our speech should have an effect, that it should contain value. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he tells us that we, uh, in Matthew 5, 13, we are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall it be, its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. There are several aspects of salt. Salt can sometimes sting, you know, especially if you have an open wound, you put salt in there, it's probably not the best remedy, it's going to sting. You're probably gonna wince and cry a little bit, but when sin is confronted, it should convict. And in that sense, both individual believers in the church and the church body as a whole should stand as a conviction to others to strive to live our lives in purity so that it isn't necessary just with our words that we're speaking God's word, of course, and that's convicting, but just in how we live our lives, that that stands as a conviction to them to let that be the salt, if you will, to their wounds. Salt is also used as a preserving agent to prevent corruption. That it means our words should have a purifying influence to those around us. And salt also adds flavor. And there's a tremendous value in salt, and it was one of the driving commodities of the ancient world to let the gracious things you say to be of value and to have an impact on who you tell it to, the words that you say to others. Paul continues in the last statement he makes uh, to close out verse six here, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And this is saying the right thing at the right time. And the more we know of God's word and have his word hidden in our hearts, the better we will be able to respond in wisdom. In 1 Peter 3, 15, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And this is something I need to be better about praying about. The psalmist directs this prayer. I think this would be another one if you want to, or if you're struggling with this, maybe you could pray this psalm. Psalm 141.3 says, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth, keep watch over the door of my lips. Watch what we say to each other. In review of today's study, I think we've more or less concentrated on prayer today. I've taken a lot of your time, but it's very important for us how we ought to be diligent in it. Uh, we could all work better, at a, or we'll all work more at a better prayer life. We need to apply diligence. We need to be watchful. We need to be grateful in our prayers, not selfish in our prayer. We need to pray for spiritual needs above all else and make the best use of your time you've been given. Let your words be full of grace and of value, having an appropriate response. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word and your instruction to us today, especially in regards to prayer. And God, it has been convicting to me. It has been somewhat like salt to me in a wound. I know I need to commit more to prayer Father, I thank you that we are reminded of this and we can lose sight of it often, 
We thank you that your word contains continual repeats so that we can be uh, convicted again and come back to the value and the importance of it. And one, we wanna thank you for this great gift of prayer and that we can petition you um, not of our own accord, but Lord, we, we do it in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest, who is interceding for us. And we thank you for the salvation that has come to us through him and his perfect life lived in his blood poured out on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins and his rising again on the third day to have us hold a victor, victorious life in him. God, I pray that if we have come to a point in our life where we've recognized that we don't have a relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ, that you would just penetrate our hearts and begin to draw the one to you who has not yet come to the saving faith that they need to profess you as their Lord and Savior. And God, that you would do that mighty work that only you can do in the hearts of people today. Maybe it's through this message or maybe it's through the effectiveness of our words. So help us to also redeem the time well and to go out and to share the gospel with anyone who would listen and that we would be clear in our sharing of the gospel and that you would open up the doors and that we'd seize those opportunities and walk through them, Lord. That we would just live responsibly in the call of the Great Commission. And we ask these things in your son Jesus Christ's name, amen.